0: Hello, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining today. Um, it's a very good day today here in Texas. I mean, it's not cold, it's nice. So thank you uh, for being with us. Um, my name is Veronica Abrez and I'm with Partners Resource Network. Today, our presentation is about guardianship of your child with special needs. And uh, we, are, we, we are going to introduce our presenters Justin in First, I wanted to tell you guys why we do a Partners Research Network. So who we are, Partners Research Network is the Parent Training and Information Centers for Texas. We are the PTI for Texas. We are funded by the Department of Education, the Office of Special Education to provide free resources and training for parents of children with disabilities and youth with disabilities that we call themselves advocates Our mission is to empower and support Texas families and individuals impacted with disabilities or special healthcare needs. Who we serve? Parents of children with disabilities and youth with disabilities from the ages from birth to 26 years old. Where we serve? In all the state. Now we have four projects serving parents and I'm part of the team project that you can see on the map in the red area. We are the parent training and information centers for Texas. Our services are free and we offer parent workshops, youth workshops, webinars, information and referrals, one on one technical assistance, supporting the IEP meetings, in the R meetings. We the once a year symposium, we offer also parent leadership training and youth leadership training and help you guys access to social media resources. So for today, housekeeping items. For today, if you have a question, please type it in the chat box or in the Q&A area. Your microphone and your uh, video camera is off. Please use this. Uh, we are Recording this presentation, and later, and, and and you you can see those kind of videos. We have a a Facebook page where we post our videos like this, and also consolidated Planning Group. They also have a YouTube channel, and in a bit, they are going to talk for you more about it. Um, another thing you are going to receive at an evaluation at the end of this um, webinar is a survey, and that helps us a lot to, you know, to improve our presentations. And also, please just give us your honest feedback. And with this, we can report to our grant and continue giving you guys free resources and trainings. And also, we do not provide CEUs. We only do certificate of attendance. If you need one, please type it in the chat box or email me and uh, we can do one for you. So this is my uh, information, Veronica Avers, my phone number, my email. Please visit our our main webpage is www.prmtexas.org. Our information is also in the chat box. I'm going to start my sharing. And now we are going to hear our class about guardianship of your child with special needs. And we have uh, Mm -hmm. Michelle Morrison from Consolidated Planning Group. She is a special needs financial planner and uh, she's going to talk more about it. And also we have Lisa Wilson, she's attorney of law. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank
1: you for having us. Uh, yes, I'm Michelle Morris from Consolidated Planning Group. Uh, we are located just outside of Houston, but we serve all of Texas. And what we do is um, you know, pretty much the same as any other financial advisor in terms of helping you plan for your future and your retirement. Your investments, life insurance, things like that. But we also focus mainly on families with special needs loved ones. So we pre- prepare and present webinars um, every week about helpful topics for you and your family. Um, and, and we plan With that in mind, the the fact that there is a special needs child in the mix, because it adds a lot of complexity to your financial picture. You know, (laughs) you're thinking of your retirement and your spouse's retirement, but then there's this third bucket of money that needs to be prepared for your special needs loved one and to take care of them for the rest of their life. Uh, So, some of the things that we do protection plans, lifetime care planning, transition planning, you know, making sure that um, all of the state and federal benefits that your family is entitled to you will receive. Um, We can help set up an ABLE account which if you're interested in that you need to contact our office ASAP because you can only put in $16,000 for 2022. Um, And the deadline is the end of the year. We can only take applications until the 23rd to make sure we get everything sent in in time and the money gets transferred in time. Uh, So if you have questions about an ABLE account, either opening one up or adding money to one that you already have, you let us know. And of course, we're always here to advocate and educate. the owner of the company has two special needs children, and that's why we do what we do. And We are proud to serve the community. So without further ado, I give you Lisa Wilson. She is one of our most trusted partners. Uh, she's here to talk to us today about guardianship and alternatives to guardianship. Um, I'll come back later and tell you about how you can get in touch with us. But Lisa, please, please take it away. Okay, so...
2: Um... Michelle, you can go ahead and go to the next uh, slide there.
1: There you
2: go. um, So, guardianship is a question that a lot of parents of special needs kids will address as their child approaches the age of 18. Um, Once they reach adulthood, it may become really difficult for a parent to be able to openly communicate with medical providers, school districts. Um, that kind of thing. So, um, a guardianship um, is one avenue that um, can be considered, but it needs to be, according to the law, the last consideration only if it's determined to be the least restrictive alternative. So all kinds of other supports um, and services need to be considered first um, before guardianship. So I think you can switch to the next slide there. Um, So the choices in front of you um, when you're making this consideration um, generally would be uh, guardianship. And then um, alternative to that could be powers of attorney. And alternative to that may be a supported decision-making agreement. So a guardianship is a court proceeding where the an individual's rights that most of us obtain when we reach the age of 14 are removed by the court. If the court makes a determination that the individual does not have the capacity to make decisions in his or her own best interest and to care for themselves um, and to manage their own financial affairs, then um, the court may determine that they are in fact in need of a guardian as a surrogate decision maker. So these rights generally involve the right to drive, the right to get married, the right to vote, the right to own a firearm. Those are kind of the big issues that Uh, will uh, become the rights of an adult as they reach the age of 18. Um, There is such a thing as a partial guardianship or a limited guardianship where some of these rights may be retained, such as a right to vote or a right to drive. But in my experience, that's extremely rare, because in order to remove someone's rights through the court system, it's a very high burden of proof to prove that this person cannot make these decisions for themselves and that this is the only alternative available to best protect them. So um, while the law allows for partial guardianships, limited guardianships, again, it's very rare that we actually put those in place you have to show to get a guardianship that the person can't reason logically um, break down complex tasks into small steps. Um, They can't think abstractly. So again, it's hard to argue on the one hand that they are lacking this capacity And then out of the other side of your mouth, argue that they should be able to, let's say retain the right to drive, which involves a lot of very complex decision-making. So for most of our cases, um, we are representing parents who are getting guardianship of their children who are reaching the age of 18, who reach the age of adulthood. Typically, this is guardianship of the person only. There's such a thing as guardianship of the estate as well, but most of our kids don't have an estate that needs to be managed. That's more relevant if grandma is starting to show signs of dementia and is making some very bad decisions and putting her assets at risk. Um, Then someone may, get appointed as guardian over the estate and they would manage grandma's assets under court supervision. So usually for our kids we're getting guardian of the person only which would give the guardian the right to consent or refuse medical treatment, to advocate for the individual to um, decide where they would live, and to otherwise make sure that they have care, comfort, healthcare, place to live, and that kind of thing. Okay, Michelle, next slide. So another route to go possibly could be a power of attorney. A power of attorney is a document where the principal, the person signing, would name an agent to act on their behalf. So there is a financial power of attorney and a medical power of attorney. So a financial power of attorney can be made effective immediately. So I have given my husband um, immediate authority as agent under a power of attorney. So if something comes up where he's trying to deal with um, a credit card that's in my name or um the water bill that's in my name or something like that he he can just handle it um maybe i'm traveling maybe i'm recovering from surgery but i'm not necessarily incapacitated but i just need his help to handle things for me i'm actually serving right now as power of attorney for my 93 year old dad and he's not incapacitated although he has memory issues but he just asks me can you do this i get confused a medical power of attorney is different in that it's only effective if the person is determined by a doctor to have become incapacitated after the date the document is signed so i have prepared powers of attorney for a number of my clients' children as they reach adulthood that may have milder disabilities. And if I'm comfortable that they understand what they're signing, the powers that they're granting, the conditions under which the person would have the authority to act on their behalf, then, you know, we've been able to do powers of attorney instead of a guardianship. Now a power of attorney does not stop the principal, the person with the disability from acting on their own like a guardianship would. So the um, power of attorney is just an extension of that person's ability and um, it'll you know allow someone to act for them, but they can still make bad decisions, um, uh, sign things that may or may not be effective, um, uh, go off with people that the parents don't want them to associate with. So there's, again, a lot of the risks are still there for a person who May not have the capacity and judgment to act in their best interest.
1: So the le- medical
2: power of attorney.
1: Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, you mentioned that you uh, have given the financial power of attorney to your husband, so that you know because it's so annoying. I'll call and they'll say, "Well, you're not listed on the account," and I'm thinking, "Well, I send you the check, yeah. but you know they won't let me let me speak." Um, what about with medical power of attorney? Do you need to give that to your husband as well, or does the marriage kind of do that?
2: No, I think medical power of attorney is is very important to have. Um, Because if you're hospitalized and um, let's say, um, your parent comes in and um, a decision has to be made and, and there's your parent and your parents making the decision where you really intended your spouse to be making the decision, so um, you wanna have a medical power of attorney, but again, the medical power of attorney is, cannot be effective immediately if you have capacity. So if we determine that a child who reaches adulthood has enough understanding to execute a power of attorney and they sign a medical power of attorney, that does not give the parent the right to make medical decisions for that child. Because we are saying this child has capacity, and no one can make medical decisions for another adult individual if that individual has capacity, mental capacity. So it would only be if there was some incident, like some accident or illness that occurred after the date of signing, that resulted in the principal becoming incapacitated, that would give the parent the right to make medical decisions on behalf of the child. So it doesn't solve the issue like a lot of people expect.
1: And this is also good for parents of, you know, neurotypical adult children to consider, you know, if, if, for example, my son, who's off in college in Chicago, something happens to him, I need to be able to speak with hospital representatives or make a decision if he becomes incapacitated. Um,
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's good for all of us, everyone to have one of these. So Um, as long as a person has the capacity. So a third avenue to go would be the supported decision-making agreement. So, this is relatively new under our law, and we're told that only Texas has such a thing. Um, So, what the supported decision making agreement does is it allows the individual with a milder disability to identify and name supporters in the document. And this is permission for third parties to talk with the supporters, usually parents. Sometimes it's an older sibling, but it will give third parties permission to talk with the parents um, about issues that normally they may not be comfortable talking with the parents about or may not be able to talk to parents about once that child is adult age. So it does not allow the parents or the supporters to make any decisions for the principal, for the person signing. It just allows them to gather information, communicate to the person with the disability what their options are, help them in making a decision, and then possibly communicating that decision back to third parties. So... Again, um, like a power of attorney, it doesn't inhibit or restrict the individual from acting, from doing anything, but um, it provides this additional support and communication with third parties. Now, in the areas that are really significant, like healthcare and education, those entities still really have to follow federal law. So they still have to follow HIPAA, and FERPA is the acronym for education records. So um, you know there's there's uh, uh, the the general practice is that those documents are done at the same time to provide that additional broader authority. So it's a very difficult decision when um, parents have children approaching the age of 18, what do you do? Do you pursue guardianship or not? I will say that um, one of the things that makes it harder, even after that decision is made, is that the general public or entities that you think should be more cognizant of guardianship, power of attorney, they don't really understand it. So I've had a number of clients who have obtained guardianship over their adult children with disabilities. And they call me back and they said, well, Medicaid said I need a power of attorney or the bank said I need a power of attorney. Well, you can't get a power of attorney if you have guardianship. Your guardianship authority Trump's any power of attorney. And also, your child has been judicially declared unable to execute legal documents. They can't sign a power of attorney. But again, you're dealing with people who may only be trained to ask for a power of attorney and don't really know what a guardianship is or what you're handing them when you're showing them your court documents that you've been appointed. Um, I will say the the areas, again, that I think it arises as a really compelling issue would be in the medical arena. And now a lot of times um, doctors seem pretty fluid about that um, authority and permission and consent. And quite a number of my clients have said, you know, I don't have guardianship. i gone with my child to the doctor, Um, my child's well into adulthood, it's never been an issue. But I've had those few clients who um, they need to have, their child needs to have a high risk procedure done. And a doctor may be hesitant to do the procedure. The doctor either needs a patient, who can fully understand the risk and give consent with that full understanding or have someone else with the legal authority to give consent on behalf of of the individual with a disability. So occasionally there will be a doctor who won't treat because they want that clear understanding that clear consent. Um, The other area that makes guardianship compelling is exploitation. And so that can be financial or it can be personal. So financial exploitation, um, somebody's talked into revealing their social security number and other personal information, and identity theft occurs. Or they're talked into signing something, like a car loan or an apartment complex rent, lease. Um, So these are things that have happened with my clients over the years, but they're pretty rare, but they happen. Then the personal exploitation, I would say that's my own term, I guess, is. when um, someone is just taking advantage of a vulnerable person. And that might be sexually, or that might be talking them into doing something dangerous. Um, And a lot of times the child, adult child, is kind of enjoying the attention and the cool friends and they don't they don't really want out of the situation um but the parent can see the harm and they don't really have any authority without guardianship um so i tell those stories because they happen and they're out there but um you know, they are pretty rare, and I don't feel like I wanna scare people into guardianship, but I think what the law is really asking us to do is to be aware of that and to be creative about, well, how do we protect our kids without taking all their rights away? So for example, I've suggested to a lot of my clients, maybe they go on the credit bureaus and put a freeze on their kids Social security numbers, so nobody can get loans in their names or anything like that. So, and Michelle, if you would move to the next slide. Um, So, um, I just want to say one thing before I move into the procedure for getting the guardianship. So, again, before we go to court, we have to consider what these consider these alternatives consider if they're practical and applicable to the individual that's um, that we're considering guardianship for and um, you know most of my clients they're they're already doing everything possible for their kids they're already providing all the Feasible supports and services so their kids can can reach their potential. Um, They want their kids to be as independent as possible. Um, They want them to be safe. So it's really hard when the law asks us to consider what other supports and services we can provide that would support the individual in making their own decisions it's really kind of hard to come up with anything because there's nothing really relevant that isn't already being implemented. By way of analogy, I think it's easy to um, visualize if, again, if grandma is losing capacity, maybe we just get her connected with a monthly bill pay service. You know, somebody that comes over and helps her pay her bills once a month, or someone who um, can come over and organize her medication, fix some meals, take her shopping, do a little house cleaning. We don't necessarily have to take all of grandma's constitutional rights away. We just give her those supports. Mm -hmm. So that's what we are asked to do um, as we're contemplating guardianship. Um, But there are still Uh, You know, a lot of individuals for whom the guardianship really is necessary and appropriate, um, where no amount of supports and services is going to allow them to maintain autonomy. The other thing that I think is important to remember, and and actually the legislature has made quite a big deal of this, um, they have produced the Ward's Bill of Rights, So there is a bill of rights for people under guardianship that basically says, even though the court has taken certain rights away, this person is entitled to have their dignity remain intact, to have all of their personal preferences for lifestyle, um, Uh, where they're living, um, all of those things considered and recognized. So it doesn't mean they have no rights to make any decisions about their living situation. Um, And so that is in the law now where that bill of rights needs to be provided to the person under guardianship once a year. So to obtain a guardianship, We start with getting a doctor's evaluation. So this is any doctor licensed in Texas can complete this evaluation. It has to be fairly recent, 120 days from the date we start the petition with the court um, because the court really wants a, a snapshot of what's the person's functional limitations right now as we start this process. We can also use a, a, a IDD determination if it's been done within the last two years um, and meets certain other requirements. But that's where we start. And we really need to have a doctor's letter that supports the guardianship. Um, and by that, I mean, you know it's clear from the doctor's evaluation that the person's functional limitations are pretty significant. We can start the proceeding with the court once we're within six months of the 18th birthday, so that we can sort of be ready for our court date right at the 18th birthday. So we prepare an application that has pretty basic information about the person for whom the guardianship is sought and their family, you know, where they live, parents, brothers, and sisters. Um, is this in fact guardianship of the person only, or do they need to have a guardianship of the estate? And that is sworn to by usually the parents, but whoever is seeking guardianship. And that starts the process that is filed with the court. The first thing that happens is the person for whom the guardianship is sought has to be served by the constable. So There are a lot of things about a guardianship proceeding that are very different from any other lawsuit or court proceeding. There's lots of protections for the person with the disability so that their rights are not taken away unnecessarily. So for example, the fact that the petition has to be sworn to, um, the fact that they are to be served by, constable, whereas most lawsuits you can get just about anyone to serve process. So alert someone that they've they've been sued. Um, Okay, you can move to the next slide, Michelle. Thank you. So there's a long list of other people who are entitled to be given notice when a guardianship is initiated. Again, this makes it very different from any other lawsuit. If somebody sues you because you owe them money, they don't necessarily have to notify your parents and your siblings and your children that, that you're being sued. But in a guardianship, it's required to let certain family members know so that you know no one can sort of slip in there and get guardianship over a family member. Um, so there are certain people who are required to receive notice or service And so that would be, you know, a lot of times if there's divorced parents, the parent who is seeking guardianship is kind of surprised to find out that the other parent (coughs) who may not have been involved in the child's life significantly for many years still is entitled to get served and receive notice um, of the proceedings.
1: Can they do anything to uh, stop it? the The other parent, if if there's an adversarial relationship, can they uh, get in the way of this court proceeding? And
2: yes, they could. So they could either say the person doesn't need a guardianship, in which case they would have to provide some additional medical documentation that said the person, you know, wasn't that um, incapacitated. Or they can argue that, you know, the person seeking guardianship is not the best person, not a suitable person. Now, if if parents divorced and they were named joint managing conservators in a divorce decree, then no matter what the relationship or feelings between those divorced, divorced parents are, if they're joint managing and they both want to be guardian, then the guardianship court can appoint them both um, to be co guardians. The guardianship courts basically kind of say, you've already fought that out in another court, in the family law court. Family law court decided you could co parent. So we're going to just import that and uh, you can be co guardians as well. So in a lot of the um, denser populated counties, there is a court investigator. And so at the beginning of the case, they typically get assigned, appointed to the case. Usually they have more of a social work background, sometimes they're attorneys. And um, their job is to meet with the family and, um, of confirm everything that's in the petition, but also they make their own assessment of whether the guardianship seems to be appropriate or not, or whether there are alternatives to guardianship. So they'll make a recommendation to the court on whether the case should move forward. And then the court appoints a lawyer to represent the child. So the lawyer's job is to explain to the child what a guardianship means and how that's going to affect their rights. And if it is going to take away their right to drive or get married. So this attorney is appointed to represent what the child wants, not what that attorney thinks is best for the child. It really is to be the voice for the child. So, in most of our cases, what the child wants is what the parent wants is what I want is what attorney at law. You know, everybody wants the same thing. They want the parents to be able to continue to care for the child. But occasionally, you know, there's some some um, adversity. But but for the most part, um, the attorney at law um, will uh, present to the court that even though the child may have had limited ability to understand what the guardianship really is. They clearly are loved and cared for by their parents and could they express themselves? They would want their parents to continue to care for them and make all decisions for them. So the person seeking to be appointed guardian has to go through um, a little training, online training video, And they have to go through a criminal background check. That used to only be for non family members. Now it's everybody has to go through a criminal background check.
1: Okay. Yeah, go ahead. To the next uh, slide, we do have a question. What if the person who is assigned to be the guardian passes away? Do they have to start over with guardianship or can a new one just kind of? step in,
2: how does that work? Typically, as long as the guardianship has not lapsed for any reason, um, then a successor can apply to the court to be appointed and they don't have to start the whole process all over again. If you look at the guardianship like a two-part thing, one is, does the person need a guardianship? And then secondly, who's the best person then to serve in that role? So you've established they need the guardianship. So then the second question is, who's the best person? And there's a specific statute that says if a parent has been appointed guardian, they can designate a successor. And there's a certain form they're supposed to do that in. And there's a presumption in favor of that person named. So the court still will always have the discretion to appoint someone that they think is best for the person under guardianship. But again, there's a presumption in favor of the person named by the parent if they've been appointed guardian of adult child.
1: Very good, thank you. Uh
2: So once all those pieces come together, the uh, court investigators report ad answer. We've got the doctor's letter. We've got the training certificate, the criminal background check. Then we can set a hearing. And the hearing generally has to be after the 18th birthday. So, because that's when the court can determine that this is an adult and this adult has a disability that um, uh, um, doesn't allow him or her to manage their own affairs and make their own decisions about their food and housing and medical treatment. So, um, so by the time we go to court, um, the court staff will have reviewed everything. um, Unless there's a contest, it would be placed on the uncontested docket. And so there's, there's not a lot of time in court because everything's been kind of checked off and done. Um, Most of the Harris County courts do not require the um, adult kids, the people under guardianship to appear in court. They all prefer that they do because they like to know, you know, whose rights are at issue here, but they don't require it because they know that a lot of kids will get very stressed out and intimidated by those circumstances. Now, lately, all these hearings are done by Zoom, so that's a lot less intimidating. and sometimes they're in the parents' home and the child is there, so the court does get to see them and talk to them, which is really helpful. We don't know how long those Zoom hearings are going to last, but um, I hope they go on. they've been they've been great to not have to go downtown and go through security and park and all that. so, Um, it's been nice. We hope they continue. So at the hearing, um, the judge, after all the questioning, um, the judge would sign an order appointing the guardian or guardians and co-guardians can only be appointed if they are husband and wife or, ex-husband and wife as joint managing conservators, or if they were appointed in another state that allowed co-guardians who weren't married and they moved to Texas, they can stay on as guardians, but you can't have like mom and an adult child, another adult child be co-guardians in Texas. Um, So after the guardians are appointed, um, they're required to sign an oath that they swear to faithfully uphold du- their duties and they have to pay a bond. Now, if it's guardian of the person only, it's usually pretty minimal bond. Um, if you're guardian of the estate, you're going to be bonded on the value of the estate. So you don't run off with the person's money. Um, but guardian of the person, it's usually just a, a minimal amount. Um, And then you would receive a document with the court seal that says you've been appointed. And that's your authority to show to school, doctors, um, wherever. Um, It expires every year. It expires one year and four months from the date of your appointment, be the anniversary plus four months every year. Um, In order to renew, you have to send in a report to the court. So the annual report is really just a page and a half of kind of fill in the blank, um, circle the answer. Um, The court wants to know if the child, adult child is still living in the court's jurisdiction or have they moved? Are the Uh, is the guardian still alive and able to take care of them? Is everybody doing okay? Um, So it's pretty brief, but they do need you to check in so they know everything's okay. So they read those, they read them carefully. And the courts in, again, some of the more densely populated counties that have more duties, they will also have a court visitor once a year. Um, now, some of the courts, they use social work students from U of H. Um, other courts, they just use volunteers, but um, these people are, are, you know, given a questionnaire and they want to come out and just make sure everybody's is okay. Um, they're not really there to scrutinize or criticize parenting tactics or anything like that. They're just making sure there's no nothing really, really wrong. Um, so the report gets filed every year with just a $12 filing fee, and then you can order new letters of guardianship that would be good for the next 16 months.
1: So So Lisa, you said that there is a background check, uh, needed as one of the steps. What happens if the person who, um, wants to have the guardianship has some kind of a record?
2: Yeah, the courts um, can't really appoint them. Um, Now, I think there's probably some discretion on the part of the court. Like if someone had a DWI 30 years prior um, and it's a parent and otherwise the best person and they haven't had anything happen since then, I think a court could appoint the parent, but I've seen a court not appoint the parent because of that in their background. So, um, you know, it's uh, there. Are the things that make someone flatly not qualified to serve as a guardian would be if they owed money to the person under guardianship, if they are involved in a lawsuit where the person trying to be appointed guardian and the person who would be under the guardianship are opposite parties, you know, they're in some contested other legal matter. Um, And then if the person seeking guardianship had a history of notorious bad acts is the way the statute phrases it, so okay we usually we usually term that in as felony convictions but the statute is notorious bad acts so I guess it allows the judge some leeway
1: so I see I see well here is all of Lisa's contact info and um like I said, we will send out these slides in an email later on today, so you'll have all of her contact info there. I have a few things to go over uh, for Consolidated Planning Group, and this gives you a great maybe 10 minutes to get any last questions you have for Lisa while I'm talking, and then I'll I'll come back to your questions for Lisa or Veronica. Again, when you get these slides, this will be a clickable link where you can go to all of our upcoming webinars and see what is scheduled. Uh, It'll take you straight to the events tab on our um, website, so you can check that out. These are some of the topics that we often cover in our webinars and things that you should be thinking about. Um, How do you develop a comprehensive special needs care plan? how do you figure out what their care in the future is going to cost? Uh, we often do estimates uh, for that. The Texas waivers, are you on the interest, interest lists for the waivers? And if not, how do you do that? <laughs> and what are the waiver programs? Um, we do a lot of helping people with their SSI benefits, making sure that they're signed up and they have all the paperwork. That they need, and then when it comes to SSDI, uh, what what's the difference, and which one should you get or can you get? Um, Able accounts, how to designate your beneficiaries so that it doesn't mess up your child's benefits. Special needs trusts, which we recommend that you uh, well, you have to speak with an attorney to get a special needs trust set up. So we recommend uh, Lisa for some of those. And if you have child support, uh, if that's a situation in your life, knowing that if you're having child support beyond age 18, it needs to be redirected to a first party special needs trust. And Lisa, could you just give us a quick, what's the difference between a third party special needs trust and a first party special needs trust?
2: Sure. So a first party special needs trust would be funded with money that the person with the disability owns or has a right to. And a third party trust, anyone else can place money in it. The third party trust is often done by parents as part of their will or state planning. So in the event of the parent's death, they're going to fund a third party trust. And money owing, uh, belonging to the child should never go in there. So usually when the child using that term broadly, person <laughs> with a disability has money, it usually means that they've just let their, uh, social security accumulate, or they've gotten a big back payment from social security because benefits were underpaid for some time. Um, they were injured in a, in a, Uh, accident and there's uh, uh, injury settlement that is personal to them. So that's their money. Or it's uh, a well-intentioned family member who leaves them an inheritance. So we just had one uh, a while ago where grandfather left his IRA to a granddaughter who had a disability, was on benefits, was under guardianship. And so we had to create a first party trust. You never wanna cross contaminate those two trusts because the key difference between them is a first party trust, the one funded with the beneficiary's own money, with the person with the disabilities' money, has to provide that when that person dies, any assets remaining in the trust go first to pay back Medicaid. For anything they've spent out for that person's lifetime. A third-party trust that parents would set up for their child does not have to have a payback provision.
1: Thank you so much for clarifying that for us. That's one that I always trip over my tongue when I'm trying to explain. Um, so uh, another thing that we talk about a lot is residential living situations and what setting would be most appropriate for your family, for your child. Um, They can have waiting lists. We've done several webinars where we have kind of a, almost like a speed dating (laughs) for residential settings and um, who they accept, how they can be paid for, whether or not they'll take waivers, for example, um, if where they're located. All that sort of thing, Uh, and you can find those on our YouTube channel, but the waiting lists can be pretty long and you don't want to wait and then find the perfect spot and then you're ready for your loved one to move and oh, by the way, we have a five year or 10 year waiting list. So you want to check on that stuff ahead of time. Um, Of course, today's webinar has focused all on guardianship and alternatives to guardianship and all of that. And then we do a lot of work um, educating people about post high school options. There are transition programs, day programs, educational programs available. Uh, This is our team. Like I said we're based just outside of Houston. We are two husband and wife teams. So there's Allison and her husband, Jeff, and then myself and my husband Andy. We are the four financial advisors. We are an independent firm, uh, so we're not tied to any one large firm that we're forced to work with. We are members of the Special Needs Planning Academy and National Social Security Advisors. And if you would like to schedule a meeting with us, we always have a free personalized initial consultation. You can use the QR code that will take you directly to our calendar. You can just pick your own day and time that works best for you. Or if a QR code is not really your style, you can call or email us, the information is there. There's also links on the bottom for our Facebook page and our YouTube channel, which like I said, is where all of these webinars live afterwards. We're even working on getting a podcast going. So if you would like to listen to the information while you do something else, that will be uh, an option for you in the future going forward. Uh, So like I said, we always do a free consultation, oops, during that consultation, we want to answer whatever questions we can immediately for you, um, and then learn a little bit about you and your family and what challenges you're facing and what strengths you have, and then tell you about us and how we work and how we charge and see if we would be a good fit going forward. Uh, We are no pressure very low key, uh, but we're here to help. So feel free to contact us if you need anything. Um, I don't I see. I have any... a question
0: for Miss oh. Lisa. Miss Lisa, did you offer your services for people that are here in Austin? Can you do that with the courts that now everything is online? Or the parents here in Austin, they have to find an attorney that you know are are here.
2: It's probably best that they find an attorney in Austin because right now we are doing Zoom, but we don't know at what point they're going to say, okay, no more Zoom. Now we're back to doing them in person. Um, So,
1: And we do, uh, we keep a list of attorneys who not only can do special needs um, services very well, but who actually do them regularly. You know, you don't want a real estate attorney who can sign the paperwork. You're gonna spend more money fixing their mistakes than just going to an expert. So we do keep a list of experts around the state of Texas and we can refer you to somebody that's closer to your area
0: um, if needed. All right, thank you so much for, well, uh thank you so much i don't see any more questions in the q a uh and it's almost uh one thank you so much for 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 your time today for all of your information that you share with our families with our parents and um and see you guys in the next one thank okay. you okay so thank you
1: very much you. all right bye thanks everybody bye thank you bye-bye Securities and advisory services offered through Triad Advisors, member FINRA, and SIPC. Consolidated Planning Group, Incorporated, and Triad Advisors, LLC, are not affiliated. Advisory services offered through Consolidated Planning Group, Incorporated. Consolidated Planning Group, Incorporated, is not affiliated with Triad Advisors.